Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Saturday night was unfortunate. Boris was clearly bounced into doing that presentation, but he shouldn't have started with the two boffins and the graph, as if to say to the country, not me, Gov. I think the news coverage in the BBC has been much too inclined to create division and stir up trouble and apportion blame. Really like to go back to a time when I could be a lady who lunches rather than the hospital bed occupancy correspondent. It's China that gave us the disease, and yet now everyone's admiring China for the way they've overcome it. I mean, hang on. One. We have liftoff. And welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. And as we speed towards Planet Normal, we're soaked up to the waist because back on planet Earth, we're engulfed in a new tsunami. As this podcast is released, the UK is a few hours into what's now a very hotly contested lockdown. The boffins and their doom graphs are being seriously challenged. MPs and lots of the public now question the very logic of Boris Johnson's government, arguing renewed lockdown will cost more lives than it saves. And the news gods have conspired to combine all that with the most contested election in US history – Trump has again made fools of the pollsters, as Democrats have again failed to properly connect with their traditional blue-collar base. But first, lockdown two, the movie. And Alison, how can I put this? You don't seem best pleased. (laughs) Well, should we start with the really bad news, which is that the £15 I put on during the first lockdown, which I have painstakingly removed from my person, so the word lockdown was mentioned by the Prime Minister on Saturday and I immediately started inhaling Jaffa Cakes, Halligan. I mean, I'm, I'm a bit worried about getting into the capsule. I think we may have to sort of, you know, can we get a bigger rocket? But yeah, apart from my lockdown-related comfort-eating issues, I am so disappointed in Boris, so disappointed. Disappointed. So we had him only a few weeks ago taunting Keir Starmer, saying it was an absurd idea that we would have another lockdown because it would be a disaster and it would be the nuclear option. Indeed. So I was talking to a friend here in my town who runs a small business and she spent thousands of pounds on, you know, all the gubbins, all the social distancing and the screens. And she said, will they lock us down? And I said, oh, God, no, Julia, they won't lock us down because we've only got in the whole of our region. We've only had two COVID deaths in the last five months. So I said, of course, they won't lock us down. And lo and behold, Saturday, that absolutely shambolic press briefing. Have we ever seen anything like it? I mean, if you were a sort of junior marketing manager organising that press briefing, you'd be sackly and wouldn't you? Must try harder. 
said the Must teacher. Must try harder. So, Boris, basically the underpinning of it is, is our old friends, the doomsters from Sage, have said, lo and behold, you saved the NHS in March and April, but now you've got to save it again because hospitals are going to be overwhelmed. And Boris said, there's going to be a medical and moral emergency and we won't be able to treat heart and cancer patients. And you know what I thought, Liam? I thought there's already been a medical and moral emergency, which has been going on since March, April, May, June, July. I mean, the Macmillan saying, you know, 50,000 extra people in the population have cancer and don't even know it because hospitals and screenings and so on have been shut. Our leading cancer charity saying that. I mean, awful! what a press release for them to have to write. Oh, can you imagine? It felt kind of ghostly when you read that. You thought, God, all these people, you know, chances are we might know somebody who has undiagnosed cancer. We almost certainly won't know anybody who dies of COVID, but we will know somebody. So I think this key argument, wasn't it, that hospitals were overwhelmed and and underpinning this was another of the absolutely marvellous witty and valance graphs, not content with having got away with the prediction of 50,000 cases cases a day. Doom porn. Doom (laughs) porn. And I used to really look at those scientists, you know, back at the beginning of the first lockdown, I remember I'd rather like the scientists. They thought, gosh, you know, here they are coming, what blinking at... reassuringly odd and oddly reassuring? <laughs> well, they were reassuringly <laughs> odd and oddly. I thought that was a good phrase. Yeah, good line, good line. So there they were. Alarmist scenarios. If we don't lock down two, 4,000 daily deaths, which obviously sounded awful. And Given that we only peaked above 1,000 once at the peak one. of the pandemic in, in April, saying that the second lockdown will be four times worse in terms of the death peak. And as you said in your introduction, it's quite interesting because all this has started to unravel because people are not having it now, Liam. You know, they've sprung these absurd figures on us once too often, I think. And it's gradually emerged that the modelling that led to that 4,000 daily deaths came from the Cambridge group. And that particular really apocalyptic prediction was from the 12th of October. But they've since updated the model twice. So Sage actively chose to go with the scariest model. It's all unravelling, isn't it? Back in the day when a new model appeared on the front of a newspaper, it was, you know, some fashion starlet and her love life or a coke (laughs) habit. But now it has been, hasn't it, modelling wars. It's like battles full of Excel spreadsheets and boffins wielding their assumptions. And this time the the country just isn't having it. And certainly at last, Alison, at last, mainstream journalists are starting to question this, mm. even some mainstream broadcasters. I must give a shout out to Ed Conway of Sky News, yes, former Telegraph excellent. man, who has now been doing some really good work analysing those graphs. Saturday night was unfortunate for people watching it on the television. It was a mess. Boris was clearly bounced into doing that presentation earlier than he would have liked because there was some kind of leak, possibly by Sage, who knows. So he had to go for the lockdown straight away. And it was prime time Saturday night. But he shouldn't have started with the two boffins and the graphs. He should have started by looking straight down the camera and levelling with the country and saying why he'd changed his mind, Mm -hmm. rather than just handing over to the scientists, as if to say to the country, not me, Gov. He's got to lead. 
And then there was just a, I'm a trained statistician, Alison. <laughs> I have lots of letters after my <laughs> name for studying economics. I, like you, Velma and Shaggy, we have been <laughs> studying these statistics literally night and day, haven't we? Mm. And I was sitting there watching this stuff as some of the rest of my family, I won't mention who, were waiting for Strictly Come Dancing to come on. <laughs> as and was I. Alison, I was confused, right? I'm a professional statistician. I was confused mm. by these graphs, even though I've been staring at graphs of the concepts that the two scientists were describing literally as my full-time job since March. And when they wheeled out that 4,000 deaths a day, I just went, no way. I did a quick calculation in my head and thought, if you compare that with the States, that's impossible, and I know some other commentators have said that in recent days, when America peaked at 2,000 deaths. Mm, mm. And then it turns out, lo and behold, that those numbers were old numbers. Mm. And even the people producing those models had already updated those models to reflect the fact that the second wave was far less serious than it was previously envisaged under the worst-case scenarios. And I'm sitting here now looking, as I do every day, almost every hour, I'm looking at the ONS dashboard of coronavirus data, and it's absolutely excellent. And I'm going to ask Reese, our producer, to put the link to it in the show notes to this episode. Mm. And I'm seeing deaths coming down on the most recent ONS data. I'm seeing cases that are 12 times higher than they were at the peak back in April. And I'm seeing death rates that are a fifth of what they were at the peak in April. And I know you've done some fabulous work this week, winkling out, as it were, in your velmatastic <laughs> way, some numbers from the NHS. So maybe you can tell us about those. Can I just say, Liam, that I would really like to go back to a time when I could be a lady who lunches rather than the <laughs> hospital bed occupancy correspondent. I mean, yeah. you know, this, this is what it's you come to. You came into journalism to talk about the arts, darling, and books and TV <laughs> critics, and you've become some kind of spreadsheet monkey. Well, unlike you, I'm very much not a professional statistician. Something rather brilliant happened this week as a Planet Normal listener who we can't identify, but works at the heart of the NHS machine and got in touch actually after, I don't know, listeners may have seen the uh, BBC medical correspondent Fergus Walsh did a rather moving report on Monday night from a Liverpool hospital intensive care unit. And it was a good report, but you would have sworn looking at it that everyone's going to die which is you know and this is all in absolute turmoil and dreadful and nowhere to put all these patients anyway yeah let's call our source our deep throat george and said that on that day that liverpool university hospital was filmed by the bbc they reported they had 463 covid patients and 41 of them were on ventilation but there were 19 mechanical ventilation beds that were still available. And altogether, there were 172 unoccupied beds capable of oxygen supply. So across those two main hospital sites, Liam, in Liverpool, it was a challenging situation, no doubt about it. But it was hardly the looming moral and medical disaster that the Prime Minister has based us going into lockdown two on. 
And those numbers you cite, Alison, didn't appear in that BBC report. And in fact, that same BBC report was cited by Simon Stevens, the chief executive of the NHS, this morning on the Today programme as evidence of the fact that the NHS is about to go into meltdown. And you're revealing figures which show, no, it's not, even in that particular case in a part of the country that's been particularly badly hit. Well, what George pointed out, I do love these killing details, don't you? So what George pointed out is, of course, there are very few discharges over the weekend. So Monday is going to be the worst day. So the BBC filmed on the worst possible day. But George goes on to say, and this is my favourite detail of the whole pandemic so far, is that the apocalyptic sage graphs, you're going to love this with your professor of stats hat on, The graphs pay very little attention to hospital discharges, which are also on an upward trajectory. So here's Velma's stat of the week. You ready for this? Yeah. Okay. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. Have (laughs) to get that. Hold on. Was that you doing (laughs) Scooby-Doo? It's just me. That was. Go on, do it again. This is a a moment. Go on. No, I can't do it. I can't. No, I can't do it. Listen, listen. Now we've got to listen. Very important. Okay. This is absolutely brilliant. So last week, a daily average of 750 COVID patients, cured COVID patients, were discharged across England compared to 350 inpatients with the virus. Now, Liam, that is really positive news. Yeah, that's a net reduction in the stock of people in hospital with COVID. But the graphs, the models, according to George, they're not feeding the discharges into the models. So it's a bit like that. Do you remember the um, Brian Hanrahan in the in the Falklands? It's all like I counted them in and I counted them out. So basically, as as George said, this is worth reading out. The problem is these models are calculated in a back room by geeks and based purely on mathematical inputs and very little real world data. Sure, if you just keep adding COVID patients at the rate they're coming in, then the hospitals would fill up very quickly. But there are plenty of people being released every single day. So essentially, nobody can get better from COVID in the UK. And that's why we are looking at this ludicrous picture just very quickly, Liam, okay? There is no threat to hospitals being overwhelmed. We've got 142 NHS acute trusts, 13 of them, only 13 of them have COVID occupancy of 20% and about six, including Liverpool, are at 30% or above, although the community cases are coming down. This is worth reading out in full. It's my final stat for the day, so we can move on to something else. So if you look at the occupancy of COVID patients across the country, east of England, 5%, London, 6%, Midlands, 10%, Southwest, 5%, Southeast, 5%, Northeast and Yorkshire, 15%, and Northeast is the worst, but still only 18%. And what I want to say to you, Liam, is if the nation is embarking on this hugely damaging £2.4 billion a day, causing so much misery to people who have barely bounced back from the first lockdown, the very least the British people deserve is that that decision is based on facts. And publicly available facts is a point that other journalists are now making, as we've been making for months, that so much of this data 
isn't available. Alison, you've you've focused rightly on hospital beds. No one's being complacent, but we've got the extra Nightingale uh, capacity available if we want to crank that back up again. The NHS has become much better at dealing with COVID, the use of steroids, therapeutics, uh, less invasive use of oxygen, so masks rather than ventilation. All these things mean COVID survival rates are much, much higher. Time spent in ICU hopefully is much, much less. But there are many aspects of this data that are falling apart now. And you've got people like Tim Spector at King's yeah, College London. Really complete, good guy. People like Carl Hennigan at University of Oxford. Now, all kind of scientific amata has been discarded, and rightly so. You've got leading scientists now openly chiding mm. Sage and the other leading scientists. And that's absolutely what has to happen. We've had so many emails from ordinary people, well-educated people with a serious mind who are now delving deep into the statistics, drawing their own graphs and saying, hang on, this doesn't make any sense at all. Mm. That's why this lockdown will be different from the last one, because lots and lots of people don't believe it. That's why Farage is performing a new party, rebranding the Brexit party. That's why this is now becoming politically very, very contentious. That's why you have lots of Tory MPs rebelling against this. That's why you have allies of the Prime Minister, like Jake Berry, Mm. the fabulous Northern MP, who is now warning the Prime Minister publicly that he needs to get hold of this levelling up agenda and that lockdown will have massive, disastrous effects for relations between the North and the South of England and the United Kingdom as a whole. This feels very, very different from last time. And if we do continue to get an evening out of the death rates, if we do continue this kind of relentless attack on the sage logic, on the logic of the Prime Minister, as I mentioned at the outset, then will this lockdown really be sustainable as we go into winter, as unemployment spikes as the damage gets worse and worse, as there's more and more heartbreaking stories. And it's great, a lot of the rest of the media, following your example of Robert and Josephine, there's now been a bigger focus on care homes. There's Mm. now been a bigger focus on the human fallout of people that are in hospital and in their last hours and their family can't visit them and all the rest of it. I'm not sure if this lockdown is actually sustainable, both in terms of people complying with it but also in terms of the broader politics. And I just don't believe the opinion polls saying that people are in favour of this. I think if you tell somebody, will, will you do things in order to save other people, they'll say, oh, yes. If you say to people, will lots of local businesses that you know get hammered and will unemployment rise because of a graph that turned out not to be true, they'd say... No, of course I wouldn't. So it's all about how the question is framed. And for a Downing Street machine that follows opinion polls relentlessly, they need to bear that in mind. So on to our guest pod slot. Who have we stowed away in the hold of the planet normal spaceship this week? Well, amidst all this news, with the angstometer needle bending in the cockpit of the planet normal rocket, with anxiety at warp factor 11... It was time, we thought, to hear from a calm, reflective grown-up. Charles Moore's also a Telegraph columnist. He used to edit The Telegraph and The Spectator before that. Charles has also written a towering three-part biography of Margaret Thatcher, who left office, believe it or not, 30 years ago this month. Yep, it's been 30 years. Now, it was in November 1990, 
after Michael Heseltine's leadership challenge that Thatcher was ousted by her own MPs, before being replaced, of course, by John Major. Now, Charles Moore wrote in his biography that, quotes, Mrs Thatcher's removal was the result of a conspiracy. But I put it to him, wasn't it also inevitable? I think it's one of those conspiracies that you might call a very British conspiracy. So the conspirators didn't have to conspire all that much. They sort of knew what to do without explicitly saying to one another, we're conspiring. I think essentially what I found out was that when she was challenged the year before by an obscure MP called Anthony Mayer, 1989, he didn't do it all well, but discontents with her came up in the campaign. And from then onwards, people in the sort of high up in behind the scenes in the Tory party, such as the then Deputy Chief Whip Tristan Garrow-Jones, began to uh, mark out a way of bringing about the change. They didn't want Michael Heseltine, the famous challenger, to take the job from her, but they did think she ought to go. And so they were sort of edging towards that position, and they were more or less ready to operate that uh, a year later. And so in that sense, it was conspiracy. I don't want to say that they had bad motives. You know, they were doing what they thought was best for the Tory party, whether it was or not. But I think that that's what they were up to. And that explains why her campaign in November 1990 was so useless. William Waldegrave, a cabinet minister of that era, of course, he said in retrospect that she was, quotes, the real leader of the opposition to the crucial central policies of her own government, not least on (laughs) the economy and on Europe. It's a great quote. And you say yourself should become accident prone. Now, there'll be lots of people listening to this who lived during that time, including myself. I was a a university student watching events avidly. But to the younger generation, what do you mean when you say she became accident prone? Well, some people say that Mrs. Thatcher was doing badly in office because she'd run out of steam. I don't think that's the case. For example, fascinatingly, which people have rather forgotten, she was the proto-green of all world leaders uh, in her last administration. That's right. Her famous speech to the Royal Society and a couple of other big ones, all about the basic theory of climate change and how there ought to be a universal action by the countries involved. Similarly, she was going gangbusters on Europe. It wasn't only antagonistic. She was trying to bring about the end of the Cold War and she was shaping the idea of a new Europe at the Bruges speech rather than simply throwing stones at the community. So it's not true she'd run out of steam. But what is true, and this is what I mean by accident prone, is that she had become so much more eminent and long-serving than almost all her colleagues, that she was cut off from them and she was rather contemptuous of them. And it's only natural in politics with the passing of time that people get fed up and they think, right, it's our turn now. And she was losing friends. So three factors came together. That factor, the poll tax, which was a great mistake, even if its principle had much to be said for it, which was making her unpopular in the country, and Europe, where there was a fundamental division emerging with her as the sort of the great Eurosceptic and Geoffrey Howe and Michael Heseltine as, and actually more privately, Douglas Heard, the Foreign Secretary, and John Major, the, mm. her successor, more privately, they were all pro-European and that was a major issue too. Don't you think she's been borne out when it comes to European integration? She was very sceptical of UK membership of the single currency, of course, And she was concerned that the more integrationist Europe becomes, the more tension and populism that would generate. That's proved broadly correct, hasn't it? I think that is correct. I think that she understood that too much integration, and particularly a single currency, would impose things upon some member states which they really hated and which they would feel democratic disempowerment about because they couldn't do anything about it. You know, if it's money, it's essentially in the control of Germany. So if you're in the southern part of the 
European Union, what on earth can you do if your currency is tied to the single currency? And it's a subject of huge ramifications. And she also, her vision of Europe was wider, but not so deep, which was also quite visionary, I think, because she wanted to bring in all the countries of the former Eastern Bloc at the end of the Cold War, like Poland, Hungary, which the French really didn't. So that also was probably the right way to look at it. The critics of Mrs. Thatcher are justified, I think, in complaining about her tone towards the end. Not actually true of the Bruges speech. The really big written stuff doesn't say this, but she did become angry with her European colleagues. There was a lot to be angry about. Yes, It made relations very difficult, and it was another personal thing that got too personal. So with Chancellor Kohl of Germany, she was horrified at the idea that the natural result of the end of the Cold War, which she really, really had worked for, would be the reunification of Germany, which she feared, and even more horrified by the idea that the reunification of Germany would also be the occasion for the creation of the single currency. So she saw this as a way of really building up German power in Europe when the whole point of the post-war situation had been to control German power. She's not completely wrong about that either, but her implication in her way of talking to Chancellor Kohl that he was, you know, almost the heir to German expansionism was um, offensive to him. And of course, that meant she got sidelined. You spent 20 years writing her biography. You probably know more about her career in the round than any living person, both as a journalist, a biographer, somebody who knew her well during those years. A quick question, would she have voted for Brexit? <laughs> um, I never do. The, I never answer the what would she, because all I know is what do I any unique selling point is knowing what she did uh, do. <laughs> but what I do know is, and I put in the book, that it was after she left office, she did actually come to the view that Britain should leave. The word Brexit didn't exist at that point, and she died in 2013, uh, three years before the referendum. But she said often to me in private uh, and to others that she was in favour of leaving. Her advisers advised her not to say so in public because it was simply too controversial at the end of her career to get into this massive issue. And I think they were probably right about that, but they shut her up only with difficulty uh, because she was very, very keen that we should leave. And that was, you could almost say, her dying wish. Well, my tiny little contribution to this conversation, Charles, as a historian of Margaret Thatcher is I met her a few times. One time sticks in my mind, the 1997 general election. I was a political correspondent for the FT and it completely (laughs) incongruously, we got in a coach and went to Aldershot FC, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, rather distinguished but lower division club. And she inspected the team on the pitch and the team had obviously been 10 minutes notice on a Tuesday morning. (laughs) Odd socks, shorts on backwards, quite literally. (laughs) And I had a conversation with her in the fringes, some of which made it into my report. And it was pretty clear to me that she did want to leave the European Union at that point in 1997. That's right. When you look back, and again, to our younger listeners, it's a hackneyed question, really. And it's unfair to put this upon you, given the scope and scale of your biography. But what was the main aspect, do you think, of her legacy? I think she did show that you can bring about economic recovery through free economics, and that you can, if you believe in your civilization, you can defeat its opponents, which is the big thing about the Cold War. And the other thing I'd say, because I think it's very relevant right now, is that quite often when I'm interviewed, people say Mrs. Thatcher was very divisive. And that's the first thing they say, particularly on the BBC. And of course, there's some truth in that, uh, it certainly is. But I think the really characteristic thing about her premiership was the that she got so much done In that sense, it was very successful. I mean, you may not agree with the things that she did, but it was very successful in that she said, I want to do this, and then she did it. And I think this hasn't really been replicated in subsequent prime ministers. It's been much, much harder for them to have a record of achievement. And she's there. She wins three general elections 
winning them all big and is prime minister for 11 and a half years. And she really did do a very large amount of, of what she wanted to do. And it was an example of, in that sense, government and prime ministership actually working. She was, of course, an Oxford-trained scientist. She worked as an industrial chemist early in her career. And her last chief scientist, Sir William Stewart, said, as a prime minister, she was exceptional. She wanted to understand and engage in science. She was interested in science. She listened to scientific reasoning. She was happy and confident talking about science. I know you don't like doing what-ifs. What you've written about her is there for everyone to see, Charles, and people, I'm sure, will read this authoritative biography for generations. But we're not academics. We are two journalists. So here goes. <laughs> <laughs> you know where this is going. If we had Prime Minister Thatcher now, do you think we'd have just called for a second lockdown? Again, I always do refuse to answer these. But the way I do answer questions like this is <laughs> I go back to one or two things she said or did. One of her real mottos and one of the reasons why she did achieve that was she would always say time spent in reconnaissance is never wasted. And one of the things that's happened in modern government, going back, I think, to the Blair era, really, is that not much time is spent in reconnaissance. So preparedness for difficult operations is very weak and the system doesn't work properly. And also because big institutions have not been subjected to rigorous testing, they turn out on the night not to operate properly. Mm. And Mrs. Thatcher was good at inspecting big institutions. The biggest of those that is not operating properly is the National Health Service. And its lack of capacity and its lack of flexibility has actually been very, very alarming in this pandemic. And this is because it's a nationalised industry of a very old-fashioned kind. I'm not arguing for a privatised one. I'm arguing for a much more devolved public mixture with lots of different elements in it, like the German one. The NHS has been a sacred cow. So everyone was clapping it and told to clap it. But actually... It may well have been the biggest single problem in COVID. And it's a very big problem right now, again, because we're being told that we have to lock down again because of NHS capacity. There isn't really another overwhelming reason why we have to lock down. It's simply that if cases rise, the NHS still can't manage this, or so we're told. Now, this must be uh, alarming, and it must be to do with the fact that we have not given proper rational attention to the reform of the National Health Service for many, many years. To be clear, you support free at the point of use, don't you? But yes. you believe there are other ways to delivering it than a single organisation with over a million employees. Well, I don't just believe it. I know it because um, though we say the National Health Service is the envy of the world, no other country really copies our system. And people go on about comparisons with America, but actually the probably the more relevant ones are, are Germany or Australia, Sweden and so on, um, where it's perfectly understood that there's a mixture of employee insurance, government guarantee of insurance if you're unemployed, a charitable enterprise is very big in Germany, devolved into different areas, all sorts of better purchasing powers and so on, rather than one big, enormous, over-centralised, crushing bureaucracy. Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, but my pals call me Chopper, and you can too. Just dropping into my second favourite podcast to tell you about another Telegraph show, mine. As a Telegraph chief political correspondent, I spend my days holding politicians to account and asking them about the things that affect you. I speak to the top politicians from across the political spectrum, commentators with their finger on the pulse, and of course, my talented colleagues at the Telegraph. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, please search Chopper's Politics wherever you're listening to this. Cheerio! 
I'm interviewing you, Charles, at a time of incredible news flow, as we say in, yes. in journalism, that there's so many big subjects we could discuss. I have to ask you, you know the Prime Minister very well. You've been his close journalistic colleague, his boss indeed, over many years. Do you think that, whether it's his fault or not, the situation the UK is now in, going into a second lockdown, is this endangering his premiership? I don't feel that it is at this point, because... A simple matter of arithmetic and of time. The government has a very big majority and it has about four years to run before it has to have an election. Though the problems are enormous for the Prime Minister and many of the criticisms are justified, I don't get the feeling that there's about to be a coup. One can always be wrong about that and there are certainly some people who like to push other candidates and so on. If the country is in the middle of one of these, well, is in the middle of one of these most extraordinary crises it's faced, and you can see that comparable countries are not doing particularly better in uh, in Europe. It's actually very mistaken to sort of pile up an extra difficulty by trying to change everybody at the top. What you want to do is try to get through this, and then you look at it and you see who comes out on top then. Uh, my antenna are not telling me that Boris is about to be overthrown, and I hope he isn't, because I think it wouldn't be good for the country to have yet another plunge into yet another chaos of that sort when it's got enough chaos going on, you know, producing a contest which in turn might very well produce a general election and so on. We've had so much of that. I think people need to be calmer. We're not epidemiologists, <laughs> another <laughs> stock phrase, but a lot of readers admire you and your columns and your take on things. Are you a great Barrington Declaration man? Are you a yes, we need more lockdown man? Economists are supposed to have very firm views. That's our stock in trade, isn't it? But on this subject, I'm afraid I think it's actually really difficult to have firm views because the truth of the matter is that nobody really knows. Even the experts don't really know. Come about... on, you wouldn't let one of your columnists get away with that when you were an editor? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> well, I think it is... You're sacked, Halligan. Yeah. What? <laughs> I, I, well, I think it is the case, though. I really do. My sympathies, by the way, are all more towards the Barrington Declaration side, more towards you know, being on the liberal side about this letting people try to make their own decisions and so on. That's definitely where my sympathies lie. But if you think about how you have to make these decisions as a minister, and indeed how the scientists have to advise, you see that we're in a sort of trap, which is really, really hard to get out of. You could not, if you were a government minister at this point, say, look, lots more people are going to die, but we're not going to do anything much about it because we think there are more important issues to deal with. If you have it in your power to produce the reduction in death, which they think they do, then you've sort of got to do that. Now, there's a lot of you shouldn't have started from here argument in all of this, but this is where we are. <laughs> the, the advisors are bound to give you gloomy projections because they're terrified of being accused of underrating the problem. And the politicians are bound to listen to the scientists. If they don't, they're accused of ignoring scientific facts. But don't you need a broader range of advisors, Charles, as well as health advisors? You need economic advisors. You need advisors on mental health. Certainly do. But I don't know that advisors are, in fact, the key issue on that, because that is a matter for politicians to decide. And I think what's going on inside the government is that you have that for a very obvious reason that you have different departments with different aims. So most importantly, the Treasury will be saying something very different to what will be coming from the Department of Health. So the issue, as always with politics, you can't delegate it to advisors, is to decide. But my point is, I would like them not to lock down. But could they actually realistically, politically, even morally, not do that if they're told that a whole load more people are going to die very fast? It may be 
that it's completely wrong, these predictions. I'm quite sceptical about them myself. What can a government do about that? How could it face down a very strong scientific advice about something that's moving very quickly? I'm not talking here about the whole scope of the policy over time. I'm talking about right now when the figures are going up fast. Absurdly, we have to move on. And absurdly, I have to ask you about Trump when neither of us knows the outcome of the election. So let's just say if he does bow out now, if he is beaten, what's his main legacy, Charles? He was an important benefit in that he exposed how weak and self-serving the existent establishment of the United States was. He's an important negative, on the other hand, because he did so in a way that was itself untrustworthy and ungenerous uh, and unpleasant. He's opened up a big problem that needed opening up, but he hasn't solved it. And it's that feeling of negativity that I most worry about. And finally, China, you wrote in your most recent Telegraph column that coronavirus could have been specifically designed to help the Chinese Communist Party's aims of global dominance by 2050. I mean, Western relations with China have changed irrevocably now, haven't they, as a result of this virus? It was a great eye-opener to to us in the West. Our eyes should have been open before about how bad China's behaviour was. I think we're very demoralised in the West. And so it may well be that Western countries will still defer to China too much and will think that our values are not worth defending because we're governing ourselves rather badly at present. The thing I was complaining about in the piece is it's China that gave us the disease. And yet now everyone's admiring China for the way they've overcome it. I mean, hang on. And I fear that because totalitarian societies love Uh, emergencies and disasters, it gives them more power. China is actually getting more power out of the virus than if it had never produced it in the first place. And that's a terrifying thought. It has an actual interest in our suffering from this. And some of our most important institutions seem to be very much sort of mesmerised by China and Chinese money. Uh, I did quite a lot of work on that. Um, When you start to look at Chinese soft power in the work of the United Front Work Department, as it's called in the Chinese regime, you see that there has been a systematic identification, which is done using data and surveillance of upper echelons in societies all over the world and how best to influence them. And one of them, of course, is to get into universities to finance various things in universities and to encourage sort of uncritical attitudes to China in those universities. Now, you were linked with the job of chairing the BBC, Charles. You're not going to put your name forward for that role, but you have been a long-standing commentator on the BBC. How do you think the BBC has done during this pandemic, and how do you want the BBC to look in the future? I'm afraid I think the news coverage and discussion uh, has been in the BBC, though very full in some ways, has been much too combative and much too inclined to create division and stir up trouble and apportion blame. And I don't think you get a cool, clear, factual account of what's going on. So I found that depressing. There's always looking for someone to attack in the coverage and to strike attitudes. And I think that's bad. What's been very good is that the new director general, Tim Davey, has come in very firmly and produced what I think are good guidelines about impartiality, if enforced, and that's the key if, of course, really would make a difference. Because I've seen sometimes in my work, I've been accused of hating the BBC. It's not the case. It's rather like almost more like an unrequited love, actually. Like you, I think, Liam, I was brought up greatly admiring the BBC and believing in what it was capable of doing. And I still believe in that, despite all the difficulties and despite the fundamental problem of the licence. It can be saved from itself. Well, I do think that impartiality is the absolute key to the public service ethos and the public service privilege that the BBC has. 
and it has been abandoned. And Tim Davy has strongly, strongly said that that's wrong. And he's introducing a whole load of guidelines which ought to put it right. Already, I see he's being attacked by BBC colleagues for doing so. And I wouldn't be super optimistic, but I'm, I'm very pleased to see that the will is there. Charles, thanks a lot for visiting Planet Normal and congratulations again on your towering biography of Margaret Thatcher. Thank you, Liam. Just out in paperback. Thank you. Well, what a lovely interview, Liam. Charles employed me many years ago and I think listeners will be able to tell he's the most civilised and just charming, charming man. I think it's interesting. I reviewed two of the volumes of Charles's biography of Thatcher and it struck me as a very interesting match because he is a high Tory from an upper middle class English, very English background. And she was a bit of a scrapper, wasn't she, Maggie? Grantham's finest. That's your neck of the woods, isn't it? Well, I spent my teenage years not far and she was at Kestevan Grammar School, which was very near us. I mean, I will come clean. I was went on marches against Thatcher when I was a student. Do you remember, Liam? Maggie, Maggie, Maggie. Out, 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 out. Out, out, out. out. <laughs> I remember that saying I had my kind of, you know, my, that was in my Cyclists Against the Bomb badges days, which we'll talk about at some God, point. You must and, have been insufferable. Um, <laughs> With with the glasses on. <laughs> it was all about the glasses. It was your glasses <laughs> anger, wasn't it, coming through? I was so good in dungarees. You can't believe it's so hot. <laughs> but I came to appreciate, of course, as I got older, I came to see how remarkable she was. I mean, as I said of the Virgin Mary, alone of all her sex. You look at those photos of her, the mm. one woman in that cabinet. And she said one of my favourite things, Liam, if you want something said, ask a man. If you want something done, ask a woman. I mean, too bloody true. And you know, we miss her now. We miss her so much because she was, as Charles said, she was a scientist. She was an Oxford chemist, but she had so much political courage, you know. You can imagine what she'd have done with Witty and Valance. I mean, she'd have had them on, the, you know, she'd have had them on <laughs> Jacob's Cream Crackers, wouldn't she? She'd have been saying, what do you mean about this, Sir Patrick? And what do you mean about this, Professor Witty? She just wouldn't have just rolled over. Obviously, she was grand by the end, but she would have been such a brilliant planet normal person. And something that touched me, Liam, years ago when I'd written a piece and Charles wrote me one of his wonderfully elegant letters in Copperplate. And he said, Alison, what I really appreciate about you is your non-metropolitan point of view. And I think that that's what she had in spades, wasn't it? She had a non-metropolitan point of view. She never, ever bought into the liberal consensus. She went her own way. I love that quote you read out where you said that she was the leader of the opposition to her own party. <laughs> That's William Waldegrave's quote, yes. But, that, but how marvellous, because when we yeah. look at the parliament now, we look at that absolute lily-livered coterie of people nodding through some of the biggest threats to our liberty in British history, and they're all sitting there. Do you think she would have just sat there and just nodded through. It would have been a case of no, 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 no. no. <laughs> I lived through that time as well. Did you have dungarees? Uh, I, you didn't. I think not. No. <laughs> um, she was obviously a divisive character. Many people in the north of England, as the UK deindustrialized yeah. in some parts, you know, she was and still is a hate figure. And yeah. You kind of understand why. On the other hand, she was right about confronting ridiculously politicised trade unions. She was mm. right about ending the sort of soft corporatism and the madness of public sector inefficiency at the time. She was right, the Foreign Office didn't want her to, about standing up to the Soviet Union 
of course. So I, I do have mixed feelings about her. I met her several times, and one time I met her, I had a long conversation with her about being an Irish Catholic in the UK in the 80s who wanted to do well at school. Mm, did you? And it's the longest conversation I had with her, and she was astonishingly sensitive and given that during that period she was the person who the world was calling mm. to give way to the hunger strikers in the H blocks. I mean, for somebody like me, a bookish Irish Catholic living in the UK, that was a tremendously difficult period for us to be Irish mm. in England at the time. And I remember talking to her a lot about that. And it was a really interesting conversation that I had with her. So it's very difficult to talk about her even now without dividing the room, isn't it? And that, in a way, is her legacy. God rest her soul. God rest her soul. And I think she'd be brilliant now. And I, I feel that she'd be looking at us and thinking, what the hell are you doing, you know, flapping about? And a number of Planet Normal listeners, Liam, have said, if only Mrs Thatcher was here to guide us through these very difficult times. Yeah, imagine the strength of character it took to be, frankly, a lower middle class girl from the provinces mm to scale the heights of a Conservative Party, which was back then far more patrician, far oh, more God. snobbish, far more mm. class-ridden than it, it is now. It, it, by all accounts, a tremendous legacy. But talking of legacies, we must quickly mention... <laughs> we must quickly mention the biggest story in the world right yes, now. Yes, absolutely. Is this Trump's legacy, or is he going to go on and become a two-term president? As we speak cards on the table the betting odds are swinging around all over the place biden was obviously odds on for weeks then trump was odds on after he took florida and ohio now biden's back mm. odds on i think what this shows for me again is just how wrong the pollsters are just how much so much of the sort of liberal establishment particularly the US press and the broadcasters, most of them, desperately mm. wanted Biden to win and almost convinced themselves with their in-house pollsters helping them that this was a nailed-on victory for Biden. He's a hell of a campaigner, isn't he, Trump? He's a hell of a campaigner. Absolutely extraordinary. And I do think, I remember a couple of years ago, I actually had dinner with Harry Evans, you know, the late, great Sir Harold Evans. Yes, and the, the Sunday Times editor who, who made much of his career in the States after being in the Sunday Times. And wrote a lot of books about American history. And I remember Harry saying, we've got to get a real guy to go up against Trump. You know, we need some self-made entrepreneurial type person to go up. And I think Biden has been a weak candidate. Let's be let's be honest. Oh, he's absolutely. Gonna be, he's going to be 78 on the 20th of November. Not I mean, as reviled as Hillary, but weak. Yeah, and I think the great problem was that the Democrats told themselves that the result of the 2016 election was an aberration. Trump won because the voters didn't like Hillary. It was more a rejection of Hillary than an endorsement of Trump, but they were wrong, weren't they? Because what we've seen is that actually, really interestingly, Liam, the exit polls showed that Trump had only gone down in support with white men, with black men and women, with Latino, with Hispanic men and women. He'd gone up. So this idea that he just appeals to bigots 
isn't right. And I think it rather parallels Labour in Britain, doesn't it? You know, that Republicans become the party of the working man. Democrats are more teachers, lawyers and professors. And Democrats, like Labour, have prided themselves on being the party of the people. But actually, they're the party now of the liberal upper classes. I mean, I'm, I'm going to say now, I, I cannot stand Trump. I mean, I woke up this morning to see him tweeting, we've won big, they are going to steal the election from me. I mean, to me, he's just this graceless narcissist. But nevertheless, where I do agree with you is that this total constant underestimation, the ignorance of people's values and points of view, which is extremely condescending and keeps coming unstuck. Although I still think that Biden will edge it. I mean, he's just taken Michigan. I think Trump will take Pennsylvania, but I think Biden might get Georgia. So it's going to be very, very close down to the wire. And then it's just going to be ugly from here on in, isn't there? It's going to be Supreme Court. and As the postal votes roll in, because, of course, almost 100 million Americans, <laughs> astonishingly, have used postal votes, mm. not least due to the pandemic. I mean, I think Charles Moore summed it up very, very well in a concise way. He said Trump's done a good job in exposing the worst aspects of the US establishment, but he's done a very bad job in that he sowed further distrust while he's been doing that. So let's have some reader emails. So many of you are mailing us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. Liam and I absolutely love hearing from you. You, our listeners, are part of a fast growing Planet Normal community. I know this is going to sound mushy, Liam, but I do think we're keeping all of us, each other going through this, really. Do you feel like that? I mean, I wonder what I did before we did this podcast, Alison, because I spend so much of my week at the moment just reading emails from Planet Normal listeners. Mm. And we must find a way to kind of harness these emails into some kind of community bulletin board. Absolutely. So everybody can see everybody else's emails because it really is an astonishing community. And only you and I are getting the benefit of understanding what everyone is saying who's listening to Planet Normal I think we're learning. We're learning a lot Absolutely. From, from, from listeners who are out there doing different jobs, different perspectives. I mean, we're we're journalists, and it's a very it's a very narrow perspective. Shall I start with one from John Sykes? Now, John was the member of Parliament for Scarborough and Whitby between nineteen ninety two in the nineties, yeah. and and John says. As he lays a wreath on behalf of his government this Sunday, I believe Boris Johnson should reflect on a shameful irony. In honouring those who laid their lives down for our liberty, it is he who has done more than any other Prime Minister in our history to deprive the British people of this hard-won and precious birthright. Wow. Well said, John. Strong words. Daniel's studying for his A-levels. I had a common cold recently, he says, as you often do in autumn. After getting a COVID test, which came back negative, I went back to school. But I was sent home again 20 minutes later because my teacher said I still have a cough. And I said, yes, I've got a cough and a cold. Today, the day he wrote the email, is just my 11th day in school in the last seven months, says Daniel. The lockdown's resulting in a generation of lost education and Boris has lost the plot. The endless spiral of lockdowns, job losses and despair is entirely unsustainable and will cost far more lives than it saves. If Boris wants to keep the red wall seats he won from Labour, he'd better change his act pretty sharpish. Gosh, that's an impressive A-level student there. Well said, Daniel. Just something to take up from that, Liam. 
is an awful lot of the, you know, we've got the the guidance. We were talking last week about some of the absurd guidance over care homes, but the guidance about sending kids home from school if they've got a sniffle is causing people not to be able to be present at work. So it has this extreme knock-on effect, including actually in the health service itself. Here's Colin, very interesting, writing from the point of view about of an experienced mental health nurse. One reason given for the new lockdown is to protect the NHS, not as you might reasonably expect in order not to be overwhelmed by the impact of COVID on its services to the public, but rather to protect its own staff, even if that means a worse service for patients. Over the past few months, around six to eight of the 18 to 20 permanent staff in this hospital department have been off work, not because they have COVID, but because the NHS deems them to be vulnerable. Each member of staff is given a vulnerability score based on factors such as age, weight, medical conditions, ethnicity, and those that score highly for vulnerability are allowed to go off work. In many cases, this is for months at a time. Understandably, this is beginning to cause non-vulnerable colleagues who are left to man the front line great anger. Last weekend, across the whole hospital, there were only six permanent staff on duty. Wow. The consistent shortfall in permanent staff available also necessitates the constant use of agency staff. So not only is the taxpayer paying the salaries of eight staff who are sitting at home for months twiddling their thumbs on full pay, but given the high cost of agency staff, we are paying more than twice over. I think this is a shameful situation and gives the lie to the official narrative being peddled about the NHS. Like many public sector bodies, the NHS prioritises the interests of suppliers, providers, rather than the customers who pay for it. Perhaps you and Liam might like to inquire as to how many NHS staff are or have been off work because they are vulnerable, as well as the total number of hours lost and the cost. The cost is spiralling. Here's one from Mary. Alison, she writes, I've long been an admirer of your writing, wit, wisdom and common sense. Misguided woman. And Liam, (laughs) here we go. Thanks for making sense of the financial aspect for non-Velmers like me. I too rooted for Boris, says Mary, and feel badly let down by him and his pack of jokers. In England, you say, keep calm and carry on. In Ireland, where I'm from, it's more cool head, dry pants. Boris and these (laughs) idiots around him are sadly and dangerously lacking. Thanks, Planet Normal, for being a beacon of light and hope in these depressing times. I think Planet Normal listeners, Liam, will probably really like to know how Robert's getting on. We interviewed Robert Styler last week about what was happening with his lovely wife, Josephine, who's in a care home. And as you said, that that issue is really coming to the fore now. Robert sent us a very funny email because I asked him how fame was treating him. And he said he was managing (laughs) to beat the paparazzi away from the door. But he just said that attached to this email he'd got from his MP was a letter from Helen Waitley, no less, the care Ah, minister, to whom I wrote wrote, um, an open letter in the Telegraph. A stiff one, shall we say. A a stiff one. (laughs) And he said that he got this reply from his MP, a reply to my letter which I sent him at the beginning of August. A timely coincidence, I fancy, being the very day after your open letter to Mrs Waitley and the fantastic (laughs) campaign you and Liam have been conducting on Planet Normal. In Mrs Waitley's last paragraph, an optimist might see a glimmer of hope. 
But the reality on the ground is this. In Josephine's nursing home, they were planning this week to start indoor weekly visits with full protection in a room set aside. The previous outdoor visits were due to the season now coming indoors. This was after the expiry of the last 28 days lockdown. But last week, there were two more positive tests among the staff. And so another 28 days visitor ban has been introduced. Unless this policy changes, and this could go on indefinitely. And as I told you, the likes of us may never see our loved ones again. This cannot be allowed to happen. We need action, not promises. There's going to be a special debate, Liam, in Parliament on November the 12th. And everyone who is with us, Robert says, throughout the country, please bombard their MPs with letters and emails, making sure that they represent us at their debate. The more noise we make, the more likely we'll be heard, saying thank you again to Planet Normal. I like the idea of having fans. Love and best wishes to you all from Robert. You know what you need to do with that parliamentary debate, Alison? You need to dust off your press pass. You need to get up in the House of Commons viewing gallery and give the MPs your your most intense Velma death stare. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking my retort, you know, we might might have to kind of go in for some sort of Welsh voodoo or something. <laughs> Let's just say, Liam, France and Germany are allowing, even in their lockdowns, are allowing care home visits because they think it's so damaging to people to be isolated and cut off. So if they can do it, we can do it. It could go either way. This renewed lockdown, it could mean no hope, Robert and Josephine, you're not going to meet even more stringent rules. Or it could mean, given the general lockdown, politicians understand that they need to temper that at the edges given the human Mm. concerns and they may quietly allow more care home visits to take place. And and talking of Velma, here's a very quick one. A Scooby snack for Paul who writes in, I have a suggestion. The press is full this week of stories about people wanting to escape England before the next lockdown. Why don't we all chip in and send the politicians abroad so we can get back to normality while they're away? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely perfect. Spot on. So that's it for our latest voyage to Planet Normal. Strap yourself in for re-entry because Planet Earth isn't getting any easier. Keep the faith till next Thursday. We'll be back for another blast-off in our rocket of right thinking, our capsule of common sense, and maybe by then with a new US president. Remember that every Thursday at 11am, co-pilot Halligan and I chat to fellow Planet Normal citizens via the Telegraph website. Just go to telegraph.co.uk forward slash community, click on the article at the top of the page and leave a comment in the comments section between 11am and 12 noon. We'll reply to them and all of us assessing what um, Robert Jenrick calls the reasonable worst case scenario. So as Planet Normal fades out of sight once more and Earth hoves into view, thanks to our brilliant producers, Rhys Gunter, Louisa Wells, Elliot Lampitt and our editor, Theo Leloudis. Until the next voyage, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.